0: Welcome to Pondering AI. I am your host, Kimberly Nevelo. Thank you for joining us as we ponder the reality of AI, for better and worse, with a diverse group of innovators, advocates, and data professionals. Today, we're joined by Chris McLean. Chris is the Global Lead for Digital Ethics at Avanade. We'll be discussing the intersection of digital ethics and AI and the nature of trust, amongst other things. So welcome, Chris.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start by giving folks a quick recap of your professional journey through to your current role and studies, or in other words, how does one become a digital ethicist? (laughs)
1: Sure. It's a a great question, I think, for people in this space at this time, because we all have such a meandering journey. Very few of us, I think, Mm. went to school for this or have been in this space for a while. I actually started off uh, just over 20 years ago in marketing, of all things. And primarily, I was doing marketing for uh, small technology startups, uh, mainly in security, privacy, risk management, and compliance. So really, from the the get-go, helping business and technology executives understand all the kind of risks and harms of technology. And I moved from there pretty quickly into market research and then consulting. And at that point, I was at a company called Forrester Research and helped scores of companies build their risk and compliance programs. And a lot of that started to bleed into enterprise risk and corporate compliance. And and the part of that that fascinated me the most was uh, corporate social responsibility, corporate ethics. Basically, how do companies behave? How do they do the right thing around some of the decisions that they're making? Um, So at the time, I got a master's in business ethics and started to do a lot more research and consulting work around helping companies build ethics programs. And then uh, Avanade found me. Uh, they had done some work around digital ethics, uh, you know, some work with clients and some thought leadership, but needed somebody to kind of pull all that together uh, and really play two roles, which is what I'm doing now. One is internally, uh, helping our more than 60,000 people around the globe understand digital ethics issues and and how to incorporate more responsibility into what we design, build, implement, and operate. And then also externally, I do a lot of consulting and advisory work with our clients around digital ethics. And then another quick aside, about a year and a half ago, I started a PhD program in applied ethics, specifically looking at risk and trust relationships.
0: Ah, This is excellent. If there's ever a time to be an ethicist in technology, it it has to be now. Certainly, we see a ton of articles and speakers talking about the fact that ethics is no longer optional. And while I agree and and would like to believe that's true, (laughs) it's not apparent to me headlines to the contrary, that this is the case in practice. And some of that skepticism may come from an observation that many ethical practices or ethics practices are really risk management practices in disguise. So can you talk to us a little bit first about what are digital ethics? What does that encompass?
1: Sure. So the way I I think about it is the intentional practice of imparting values throughout the technology lifecycle. So from the very early stages of conception through design, development, implementation and operation, you are imparting ethical principles into your decision-making. You know, how is data collected? How does this interface interact with people? Um, you know, where is the data stored and what kind of processes are we supporting? Um, for me, a big part of that is thinking through the impacts on individuals, on society, and on the environment. And once you understand all those potential impacts from the technology, making sure they're as positive as possible. So it's kind of like risk management in, in some ways that we are trying to eliminate the, the harms and, and potential future harms, but we're also aiming for positive ethical outcomes. You know, we're thinking through things like accessibility, inclusivity and diversity, uh, respect for privacy and mental health health and well-being and so forth.
0: So what are some of the key differences that we should be cognizant of between digital ethics and risk management and or compliance, et cetera?
1: Yeah, it's a really important question, I think. And again, I have tremendous respect for the disciplines of risk management and compliance. I did a lot of work with companies in both disciplines. And I think Anybody in, let's say, responsible innovation or responsible AI, any of those fields, they have a lot that they can learn from risk and compliance, policies, procedures, controls, assessments, a lot of that sort of go- governance and oversight. All of those are very important to have in a ethics program as well. But I think... For me, there are four kind of key reasons why we should distinguish between ethics and risk management. I'll try to go through them relatively quickly. Um, The first is that as a discipline, risk management is almost always going to be inwardly focused. That is, you talk about risks to the enterprise, whether they're legal, operational, financial, or reputational. So if you think of something like, why should we avoid using an algorithm to screen out resumes? The risk to the enterprise would be, well, if there's bias in in that algorithm, then we could get sued or there could be a regulatory enforcement action or maybe some reputation damage. But if you think about, uh, the ethics of it—you're thinking through individuals who might be looking for a job after having not worked for months, or maybe they're a, you know, a single parent and they have several children and they—they're not working. And the—the the ethical harm that we're doing to those individuals is very hard to calculate alongside the risk to the enterprise. The second reason is actually because of that. The first reason is that risk management is. By definition, a prioritization scheme for remediation. You're trying to reduce mm-hmm. uncertainties. So, if you try to compare those two different potential harms, you know, a lawsuit against the company versus you know, screening out somebody because of some you know protected characteristic, it's very hard to navigate. You know, which is the the bigger risk that I should uh, spend re- my remediation time and effort on? So that's number two. Um, number three a lot of the harms, a lot of the downside of the technology that we use, the things that we have to consider in trade-offs are not risks. So if you think of AI specifically, we know that there's a big investment from an environmental standpoint in the hardware that it takes to run these AI systems, in the energy cost and so forth. Uh, We also know that a lot of these big uh, models that we've been uh, talking about in the news lately, they're built using a lot of cheap labor you know people that are not paid well and not treated very well and they are necessary for the creation of these ai engines those are i would say harms or or downsides that we should be considering they're not risks so if we're thinking risk and reward of using an ai system we're going to ignore some of those harms and then finally the fourth reason is that risk management because it's disciplined discipline in reducing uncertainty you're only ever going to be trying to strive for neutrality. That is removing uncertainty, removing that risk. You're not looking for ethically positive outcomes. So if you take, let's say, ChatGPT, if you're a university and you're thinking through an ethical risk assessment, you're thinking, well, it could be used by students who want to cheat, there could be a risk to their ability to learn certain content. Uh, it's going to be difficult for the teachers because they're going to have a lot longer papers that, have to, that they have to grade. Those are all risks that would be mitigated. But if you're thinking about an ethical impact assessment, you have the possibility of thinking on the positive side. So from a learning perspective... ChatGPT actually might be a great tool for learning in some scenarios. That's a positive ethical outcome of this new technology. It's not an ethical risk to be mitigated. it's an outcome it's a positive outcome to be, uh, to be approached or, or vied for. Um, so those are four reasons that I think we should distinguish between the two. Again, I think risk and, and compliance and ethics should be working very closely together if possible.
0: Yeah, it's that idea of looking for positive or beneficial outcomes or ethical impacts, is interesting because again, this is not something you can weigh on either side of the scale. So it, it struck me as you were talking that I don't know if ironic is the right word. That this is one area in ethics in particular because, as you said, with risk management, a lot of times we are trying to quantify what the the risk, the harm may be, whereas ethics may be an area where. A data-driven approach may not actually be warranted or appropriate. Is that I th- fair?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right, and maybe not ironic, but per- perhaps counterintuitive, because you you know, we are we are looking for potential trade-offs, and you know the trade-off might be: I like the idea of protecting people's privacy. I also like the idea of making certain data available to support uh, law enforcement and investigations. And those two things can sometimes be in conflict. We can't really quantify the two, uh, but we can talk to, talk through those issues on an ethical scale and think, okay, how can we protect people's privacy, but also do what we can to support law enforcement? It's not a trade-off in the same way you might think of risk and reward.
0: Yeah, Kate O'Neill had spoken about being able to hold two ideas seemingly, you know, contrary to each other, the sort of both-and, right, not either-or, but both-and, uh, mm-hmm. and having that discussion do you make a distinction in your work and studies between digital ethics and AI ethics?
1: I, I don't make a, a big distinction. I think um, you know, just with the, the marketing background I had a long time ago, <laughs> I used to spend a tremendous amount of time uh, with technology vendors and and other marketing people and and executives really trying to parse through the language that we're using to define a a market category. And I think you can go crazy trying to figure out, okay, what's the difference between uh, ethical innovation or um, ethical AI or responsible AI or trustworthy AI? I think for me, so many of these disciplines or these programs are trying to basically accomplish the same thing. Um, for me, my my role is specifically digital ethics, but I also spend most of my time on responsible AI. Uh, so I, I consider it part of my my jurisdiction to to focus on responsible AI. I'm also doing work around responsible metaverse uh, implementations. Uh, Avanade actually does a, a tremendous amount of work around modern workplace and sort of all the the tools and technologies that we use in our uh, office environment to to get business done. I spend a lot of time with those technologies. It's all digital ethics, but AI ethics or responsible AI is a big part of it.
0: Yeah, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the work uh, work on the workplace, in the workplace, mm, and, and sure. the metaverse. Before we go there, anything you can, are there, are there any insights or observations you can share about how we're approaching, I'll call it ethical AI, responsible AI, digital ethics, in terms of where we're doing well, and and where organizations may need to start expanding their focus. For example, a lot of the conversations in the initial focus and in programs tends to be around bias. I think this is a great, amenable place to start. It has the benefit of being somewhat concrete, uh, which is not mm-hmm. to say that defining an intended outcome, you know, cue the inevitable disagreements about what is fair uh, mm-hmm. here. But it's certainly not you know, an unusual or risque topic anymore, and it's it's a worthwhile starting place. But what else or, or what might we be overlooking if we're focusing primarily or only on bias in these assessments?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of my process starts with impact, thinking through what technology are we building and how is it going to be used? How might it affect people? And then specifically, what are the potential ethical impacts of, of that technology or system or process? So if you are working in a company that is building smart cars or you know, driverless vehicles, the ethical impact of those AI engines that are driving that car, if you get that engine incorrect, if the AI is not working appropriately, there are major health and safety implications, right? Uh, Also just the space in general has uh, economic and labor force implications. So if you're thinking through the ethics of driverless vehicles, the impacts are very different than if you are thinking through the ethical implications of, uh, let's say, a a chatbot or a resume screening tool. Those will have implications related to fairness or respect or dignity. So if you start from what are we building and what is it hoping to accomplish, what are the ethical impacts, you're going to come up with a whole lot more potential areas of focus rather than just bias. So the digital ethics assessment framework that I built um, actually looks at 30 possible categories of impact. And we look at the domains of individual impacts. So things like privacy accessibility inclusivity mental health physical health opportunity and financial well-being those are all things that a technology could impact on a, on an individual scale we also look at societal impacts so i mentioned law enforcement you know we have technologies that could impact education healthcare politics uh, military and so forth and then finally we look at environmental impacts so the you know the hardware the materials used the energy used you know potential impact on pollution or other operational impacts. And then we have a 20-point assessment that's on the tail end of that impact assessment that will look at potential controls. So if we say, okay, we care about fairness as a value, we know that this uh, technology has impacts around things like uh, opportunity and and health and privacy, then we can use that set of impacts and say, okay, if we care about fairness, how do we make the resume screening process more fair? Or how do we make this chatbot more accessible? So we use the values based on the impacts we've identified, and then the controls as, as the back-end part of that assessment. So it's, it's complicated work, but I would say there's so many frameworks and guidelines out there that are basically just a list of values, fairness, uh, trustworthiness, accountability, transparency, and those are all good to keep in mind, but they don't mean anything unless you can apply them to the impacts that uh, that technology will have.
0: So what is the reaction to that framework? Because as you said, it, it is complicated. I, do, you, do you get sort of the deep sigh and the, the subtle backing up or, or are folks finding ways to do this in a way that, you know, is manageable and operational. What's what's the general reaction?
1: It's very it's a very fair question. Again, you know, having that background where I've worked a lot with people in security and compliance and risk management, <laughs> they're very familiar with these very lengthy and complicated frameworks, you know, ISO and COBIT mm-hmm. and, you know, IEEE and all you know, all these kind of standards out there that are that are comprised of a lot of different controls and policies and standards and things like that. But you're absolutely right. In, in the space of responsible tech or responsible AI, um, we generally haven't gotten that far down the road yet. So, for example, I will I will use the this framework as kind of the basis for the work that I'm doing with clients and, and internally, but I've also built tools to make this very accessible for people that don't think about ethics on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, uh, I built, uh, using a Microsoft Power App, a 12-question survey. And it's very easy, kind of straightforward yes or no, that helps to triage a project based on its baseline characteristics. So, is there or is there not uh, personally identifiable information as part of this project, yes or no? You know, Is there a user interface? Will people be interacting with this system? You know, so we provide this app so people can very quickly go down this list of questions and say, yes, we're doing this. No, we're not doing this. So from my standpoint, it helps them kind of uh, I guess it helps alleviate a lot of their potential concerns to say okay we don't have to worry about privacy with this mm-hmm. project. We do have to worry about health and safety concerns and it also helps provide information for me about whether or not I need to get involved with that project or the degree to which you know our our digital ethics processes have to be be part of this particular engagement. So so yes the 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 detailed framework is is quite lengthy and complex, but uh, we're doing everything we can to make it accessible and make other kind of tools and processes accessible for the people that are, you know, having to to code every day or people that are doing data science work on a day to day basis.
0: Yeah, and such an important point there, which is not all domains or aspects that you could look at in the comprehensive framework are going to apply to any one mm. application. So I like this idea of. Mm-hmm really pinpointing from principle to to practice and we'll we'll provide a link in the show notes to that framework. I want to maybe take a, a slight I don't know if it's a turn necessarily but a while back we had a really great conversation with uh, Marisa Shop and we were talking about these concepts of the difference for instance things between trustworthiness and trust and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, trust is a trust is a very funny thing. There's quite a bit of research and anecdotal evidence that show that we we humans are often, against all logic uh, and even evidence to the contrary, overly trusting in the outputs of digital systems and uh, AI in particular. We can see this right now with a lot of the breathless pronouncements uh, and predictions around chat GPT, for instance. Mm. And I'm sure there's numerous factors. I, I, I'm not always you know, is it naivete? Is it just an intense desire for it to be true? This sort of optimism about the future? You know, it's exciting. Is it magical thinking? Is it, is it other? What in your, ex, you know, in your experience and, and what you've seen, what lends to that tendency not to necessarily be skeptical, but to to be overly trusting, which can cause its own set of harms?
1: Yeah, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm currently doing my, my PhD research on trust specifically. So, uh, yeah, I, I think about this quite a bit, and uh, we, could, we could talk for hours about the topic. It's, it's tremendously fascinating, and, and there is a lot of research out there. Um, for me, the, I think the easiest and probably the most accurate way to think about trust is that it's a stance that some entity is a good steward of some power, So if I trust a driverless vehicle, if I trust a, let's say, a corporation to manage my finances, or if I trust my neighbor to watch my house, I'm basically putting some power or maybe acquiescing some power into their hands because I deem them to be worthy of that power. So if I think about trust in case of a, let's say, an AI system or a technology system, I'm saying I'm okay with this system doing a certain job for me, putting potentially me at, at at risk, but also potentially other people at risk. And uh, that power could be, you know, beneficial for, for me, could be beneficial for other people. But I'm saying there's there are a lot of different ways that I might come up that stance, come by that stance, I might have a deep emotional connection with a a certain individual who built the system, or, you know, I trust this corporation because I've worked with them a lot. I know that they, or at least I feel that what they are doing is, is going to align to my expectations and values. But whatever it is that causes me to have that stance, I'm basically coming to a conclusion to say, it's okay that this system or this corporation has a certain power. And I think uh, the, the thing for me that I get nervous about and really what, what a big part of my focus is in the research is that uh, so much of the discourse on trust is uh, related to interpersonal trust, right? Mm-hmm. I trust my phone. I trust this, this news article or this news outlet, And for me, I've been thinking in terms of uh, more like extra personal trust, something beyond interpersonal trust, which is if I make a decision or I take a stance that some entity is worthy of some power, it doesn't just affect me. There are a lot of other people that could be put at risk based on my decision or or my stance. So let's say if I trust this driverless vehicle, I'm okay getting in this vehicle and having it drive me across town, and that puts me at risk but it also puts at risk all the other people who might be driving down the street or you know walking down the sidewalk they are affected by by decision as well and the, there are two examples uh, just in the last couple of years about how this really could play out on a, on a much bigger scale. One is with the uh, Michigan Unemployment Office and one is with the Dutch Tax Authority, where these government agencies decided, here is a company that will build us this sort of algorithm, this set of algorithms, to identify fraud in the people that are requesting this kind of government service, You know, one for unemployment insurance and one for, uh, I think, child credit for the tax authority. And in both cases, this set of algorithms, this AI system, misidentified tens of thousands of individuals as fraudulent. So it cut off payments, it enforced fines, it cut off other services. And the implications, if you read into this, are are quite drastic for a lot of the families. I mean, this this is the kind of thing that tears families apart and, and potentially worse. And so this idea that An individual or a small number of individuals at these authorities trusted an AI system. They have that sort of interpersonal trust that says, you know, I don't think I'm going to get fired over this decision. I think this, you know, this company is pretty good. They're going to build me a good system. They have some personal risk related to that decision. But my guess is they did not do an assessment of all the sort of various risks that they are imposing on these tens of thousands of individuals that were misidentified as fraudulent. And that kind of, I guess, expansive view of trust decisions I think is tremendously important. There's all kinds of implications that I don't think fit into our current schematics for trust.
0: Mm-hmm. And would it be fair to say that part of the problem, too, is sometimes as creators of these systems or even as how the systems themselves provide an outcome or an answer or a suggestion, it, it, they're done very, I, I think you've said, an authoritative tone. Mm. Mm-hmm. or with the high degree of confidence either implied or inferred in how something is presented. Is that adding to the confusion?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, that, that is uh, largely a, a desire by the creators of of AI systems, right? There's there's the Turing test, and people are trying to build something that's going to sound like it's human and have a kind of authority and, uh, I guess, interpersonal confidence of of a human, right? So it's I think a lot of it is on purpose. It's it's meant to sound authoritative and and have that kind of deep expertise behind it. And I do think and an sort of another concept of trust is that it flows back and forth. It it increases and decreases. It's, it's not like a one-time thing that you can say yes, I trust and that's it for for my lifetime. There are ways to reevaluate trust or monitor performance to mm-hmm. determine should I still. Have trust in this system. So if you, let's say, decide, okay, this system's great, I think it, it deserves some power, I, I don't mind if it runs this process for me, I'm still going to monitor the outcome. I'm still going to look at see. Is it really uh, providing the the performance that I was expecting? It sounds like it has the authority and the expertise to do this kind of thing, but if I take my my actual experts, my human experts, and watch over the result of this analysis, we're going to to identify maybe some places where this machine is not working as well as it's intended, and my trust level is going to be reduced a bit, so I'm going to have more monitoring and oversight. Maybe I'm going to have that human in the loop that might override some of those decisions. So this, you know, this sort of, you know, interplay of trust, I think, should help determine, you know, again, what level of trust we have, and and that will dictate the level of oversight, the level of involvement, and and, and the risk that we're willing to take based on the decisions made by these machines.
0: You've written about the interplay between what I believe you termed digital makers and digital takers. And a lot of what we focus on is how can we organizationally look at practices and processes to ensure that the makers, uh, the organizations, and and the teams of these systems are stepping up to their responsibility. But in reading some of your work, it, it was really important, I thought, to underscore the need for us to level up as individuals as well, or at least that's what I took from it. I don't know if that was that was what was in, intended. And that requires an increased level of what, again, another term I haven't necessarily seen in this context of digital intelligence. Can you talk a little hmm. bit about the, the thinking behind the, the makers and the takers and what we may need to do from an individual standpoint, especially for folks who might be consuming some of these systems or, or applications and not be in tech and, and not be thinking about these things more broadly.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a, it's a really great topic. I, I will give credit to my colleague Eunice Treme, who actually came up with the idea of that uh, Yeah, the digital makers and takers. Uh, she's a, a great uh, consultant in our modern workplace line of business. Um, yeah, the idea is that Really whatever your your role is you might be a designer you might be a software engineer a data scientist um, but also you're a user and you're um, maybe you help influence technology decisions you know maybe you're in procurement or finance or HR in any of these roles we all have a part to play in making the digital universe or the digital ecosystem mm-hmm. so certainly as an individual who's designing developing implementing or operating these technologies you can make decisions on a day to day basis to consider your impacts and and think through, okay, how can we improve these impacts you know reduce the negatives you know aim for the positives and so forth but even as what we might consider a digital taker someone that's using these systems or or maybe influencing these purchase decisions, uh, you can also influence the digital ecosystem so let's say you know as a consumer you think it's a really good idea to have one of those connected doorbell cameras you're getting benefit you know as a sort of taker, right? But you're also contributing to a landscape where data is being collected on people who are delivering things to your home, or actually, there's been studies that show those cameras can pick up sounds from you know 30 feet away. So you're actually contributing to the digital environment in that you are recording your neighbors' conversations and that data is going to be stored on some servers that are owned by some, some company that they never have interacted with or certainly haven't consented uh, you know, to, to have their data stored by. So you are you are helping make the digital ecosystem with some of those decisions. And if you think actually just, you know, in the news recently, you know, these big engines like ChatGPT, we're learning more about the people that uh, were behind the the making of these systems, you know, not just the uh, the big brands that we're very aware of, but also, you know, these these workers in Kenya that were uh, apparently treated very poorly, that were paid very poorly. And without their work, these engines would not be fit for purpose. You know, they would not be showing up in our you know, office environment. They would not be uh, suitable for using in, let's say, college exams or papers. So their work was tremendously important, but are they compensated uh, as much as they, they should be? Whereas, let's say, you know, I might be a taker. I might be using one of these systems without considering kind of what went into it. And the last thing I'll say there is that, if you are influencing these purchase decisions or use decisions, if, if you are working at a large organization, people in procurement have a tremendous ability to influence uh, the, the vendors uh, that, that are trying to sell into their companies. So asking simple questions like, how do you make sure the people that are contributing to this technology are fairly compensated, fairly treated? Uh, you know, we have all kinds of you know, third-party uh, audit standards and, and guidelines that you can easily fit some of these questions into. And big companies do this all all the time, I would say, if you are part of that process, there's uh, there's a whole lot you could do to expand the conversation about uh, responsible uh, innovation and and uh, responsible tech.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what about you? Mentioned uh, we could go down a, a long conversation on, on, on all of those aspects, but you mentioned the folks, for instance, who are inadvertently picked up on, on the ring camera, right, and and mm. uh, doing that, or starting maybe to use something like ChatGPT. You do a lot of work in work in the workplace an odd turn Mm of phrase. And there are certainly (laughs) aspects of this where folks can feel like they are, and sometimes really are, just the object of the, or the subject of the system and and don't necessarily have, you know, a lot of agency. And if we look at some of the trends right now to, you know, and I would call it surveillance, and I'm not just talking about sort of cameras here, but if, if we think about the digital and the data footprint that we're putting in, but in the workplace today, to really monitor at a really detailed level, what people are doing, how they're working. I'll just call it employee surveillance in general, right? And there's sort of this relentless push for productivity and efficiency that it's not at all clear is going to lead to the outcomes a business would like, because what what can be seen and what can be, you know, measured or captured from t- data may not actually ultimately be, you know, what's important and what matters. So how do we navigate, you know, this kind of circumstance? So, you know, let's look at the, the case of Know, surveillance or monitoring for purportedly performance purposes in the workplace?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a tough question, a very complex landscape. Mm-hmm. For me, the distinction between monitoring and surveillance, surveillance usually has a connotation of suspicion, right? You are surveilling people that you think are going to be acting inappropriately. Monitoring in the workplace, I think, has very legitimate uh, use cases. We have monitoring all the time for Protecting corporate or employee or customer assets. You know, think of, uh, you know, secure information security, right? Trying to monitor who is accessing certain systems and why. You know, are people downloading massive files over the weekend from the CRM system? You know, that that kind of monitoring I think is very important for risk management purposes. I think the. Tougher argument would be the, the kind of monitoring I think you're talking about where it's looking at uh, employees' behavior, you know, how many emails are they sending, who are they chatting with, e- even there have been use cases that have been either tried or, or hinted at that are looking at your face during a meeting and saying, are you happy or sad or upset or impatient during this meeting? And I, I have a really hard time trying to articulate a use case that doesn't feel like suspicion, you know coming from the employee mm-hmm. right that that if I'm being watched all day and and the number of emails and the number of files and, and and what my what my eyes are doing during the day if all of those things are being tracked I I am going to feel like I am a suspect right that at any point the company's going to say we don't think you're doing the right thing and so I would say that there probably are use cases where employee monitoring is going to be helpful for the employee Where if it's from a performance perspective, you know, maybe you are looking at your, let's say, customer relationship or customer service team, and you realize that after about three hours being on the clock, they start to have a little bit of a lull. Maybe we need a a new policy that says we should have them take a break every two and a half hours. That's a legitimate use case, a, a good outcome. It requires some monitoring. But even in that case, I would say it's important to be very transparent about what data you are collecting and aggregating, how it's being aggregated, uh, who's using it, who's accessing it, I always think of privacy in, in sort of three different categories. One is data collection, one is data control, and one is data use. So like, let's just take that one use case. You want to look at data collection, what data is controlled and how. Data control, who's going to see that data? How is it stored, accessed, secured? Do the employees have access? Can they see it? And then data use. Is it being used to improve policies, to improve, let's say, work-life balance or, the number of rest breaks which could uh, contribute to mental health and well-being? Or is it being used for very strict performance management, which says something like, we are going to let go the 5% of people that are not spending as much time sending emails or on the phone? And that if you if you start to get into those other use cases, like we are looking to fire people or we're looking to you know punish them in some other way, that is going to feel like surveillance. Like we are under suspicion of acting inappropriately, and I think employees on the long term are not going to operate well in those environments.
0: Yeah, I suppose that ties back to your previous point, which is ensuring that when we're looking at the systems, and maybe this is where ethics, again, comes in outside of compliance or risk management or performance management, mm-hmm. which is looking for you know what you call ethically positive or mutually beneficial aspects of systems and making sure that that actually exists for something that we're going to deploy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, so much of it comes down to intention.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, you are doing some work today around the metaverse. And I'd love to have uh, just a short chat about that before we let you go here today. I think this is a really interesting case study or perhaps better stated, an experiment in progress because the metaverse, right, is by digital design, a maximally, I'm gonna use surveilled, but monitored ecosystem. It's entirely encapsulated. All of your actions are are there in in a digitized form to be you know seen and and analyzed. So it's an interesting proving ground in some ways I think for these concepts around providing true agency, managing privacy, this idea of, you know, mutual beneficence or or ethically positive outcomes which I love. I might start using that uh, fair warning. So how are you seeing the Metaverse being instantiated in the corporate or business world first, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the you know ethical risks and issues your clients and workers are grappling with as a result?
1: Yeah, certainly very interesting times i I think there are ways to use metaverse type environments or experiences, again, in in ethically positive ways. I see all kinds of really interesting uh, cases where Let's say uh, an individual has a health challenge, they are having a tough time getting in-person treatment, they can at least get into a virtual environment with a physician or a doctor. They can talk through some of their symptoms, you know, creating that sort of a relationship or establishing a relationship that they can trust this doctor and they can um, maybe get better health treatment because of that. Or, or one of the, the best cases I've seen is... Um, or at least uh, you know, hypothetical cases would be, let's say a, a child is sick, uh, maybe they're in the hospital bed, but their favorite band is in town and they want to attend a concert with their friends and they can do so in a metaverse environment where in real life it would be a, a major challenge. So I think if we think through... What what the metaverse could mean for some people. There are great benefits around accessibility. You know, giving people with mobility challenges greater access to in-person services, whether let's say financial or healthcare great use case, right? So I think if we think through how we are using these kind of environments and experiences, I think there's a lot of good that can come out of it. I will say we know for sure that there are current trade-offs. A lot of them are environmental cost, you know, the amount of energy it mm-hmm. takes to support these environments and, and simply the hardware, uh, some of which is going to be obsolete uh, in, in a year or two and has, has to be thrown away. So we should be very practical about some of these trade-offs. But think through some of the benefits of being able to see somebody in a virtual environment from a customer service, from a patient perspective, from a mobility perspective. There are all kinds of benefits that I think we should be thinking through. And then once we have those use cases that we're pursuing, that's when we start to talk about impact. And we can say, okay, what is appropriate with regard to collecting private data, right? If you think through the cases where we've seen social media on social media the amount of data that's collected not just on our, our sort of PII our standard you know personally identifiable information but our behavior our attitudes who our friends are who we interact with maybe some of that data being used for political purposes that's scary enough but then if you think like in a metaverse environment where something is watching your your facial expressions you know where your eye is lingering you know how much better our marketers going to be at helping really create advertising that's very, very effective for an individual based on where their eye lingers in a commercial setting. So there's so much more possibility to abuse private data. Uh, there's there's an expansion of what it even means to have private data, right? What, what constitutes private data is going to be much, much bigger in a metaverse environment. So yeah, all kinds of potential performance and, and certainly ethical issues to think through there. I think it's really, really interesting. We do have customers that are moving you know in, in that direction, and uh, we're working with them uh, on some of those decisions. Um, still early on in a lot of cases, but there's so much to, to go through. It's really fascinating work.
0: Yeah, and over the years, we've thought about the idea of personally identifiable or just sensitive information. It does seem that more and more we tend to think about that as as attributes, right? Uh you know, where do I live, where do I go? But I think that Mm. the information that we are deriving about you, so the analytically derived information is in fact a lot more sensitive and, you know, potentially private than anything you might know about just point places where I show up, you know, in my car versus when and where I do that or or who I talk about. So I'm looking forward to us finally expanding our definition of, of what should be considered private, sensitive Personal, moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So before we we let you go, I, I I love this idea of again trying to always orient around an ethically positive perspective or trajectory, but it's certainly easy for those those things to run aground or run afoul of our our uh, you know day to day processes and practices. So what advice or, or you know practical actions do you or would you leave with folks perhaps in the corporate realm, and then would that be any different for folks working in in public spaces?
1: It, it will be similar. I think the the big thing for me is that when I talk about ethically positive outcomes, I think a lot of people are going to automatically assume that I'm talking about something like tech for good, mm-hmm. which is technology that's used strictly for an altruistic purpose, right so we do a good deal of that work. We actually have a whole uh, discipline at Evanod that is just tech for social good. But what I'm talking about is more like our day-to-day technology that we interact with, whether it's as a consumer or as, a, as an employee in the workplace. We can still aim for ethically positive outcomes in the technology that we're using for, let's say, healthcare, finance, HR, You know, our general sort of performance management systems. All of these can still have ethically positive outcomes. If you take the case of, let's say, accessibility, making apps more accessible, mobile apps or, or uh, things that we're using on our computers, accessibility is a good idea ethically, but also it it increases your adoption and your user base. It allows more people to enter into the workforce and and engage with a company in different ways. So when you think about this idea of, of ethically positive outcomes, it's not just about altruism. Uh, for example, we had a, a company that we worked with that that built a sort of a tracking system that was built specifically to keep people safe, that was helping them keep track of their hours so that they get paid more accurately. A lot of really positive outcomes could come from that, but nobody wanted to use it because they were nervous about the privacy implications. So by helping them kind of walk through, you know, what does this system collect? How is it being used? How is it being controlled? Um, that was a way to help increase adoption of that technology, and we do that a lot. We worked earlier this year with a uh, a mental health app that uh, that would allow employees to uh, really help them achieve goals around mental health. And again, I think a big concern is that I'm interacting with the system as an employee. I'm providing very intimate details about how I live my life, my behaviors, my relationships, and so forth. I'm not going to use that system if I think that data is going to be abused in any way. So in this case, creating good policies, good practices, good communication is going to help things like adoption, engagement, You know, maybe like sort of grassroots a discussion, so helping get other people using that app because you've had a good experience. Those are all good, I would say, tech outcomes. You know, people that are building apps, they want better adoption and and better engagement, Mm -hmm. and they want more people to to talk about it with their friends. So if we do ethics right, a lot of times your sort of business or technology objectives are more likely to uh, be successful. Uh, So that's one way to kind of get over that barrier of people being maybe put off by the idea of ethics or not wanting to spend that extra time or money to do that impact assessment. If you do it right, it's going to be better technology that people will want to engage with that people will trust.
0: Yeah, this is excellent. I really want to thank you just for joining us and providing some of these perspectives that help us expand our understanding of what, what the boundaries and and even reason for digital ethics really is. And, frankly, for challenging us all just to become more informed and ethically positive. Yep, my new favorite phrase, Uh, digital makers and takers. So thanks again for your time.
1: Yeah, really great to be here. Terrific questions, and I really enjoyed the conversation. So hopefully do it again sometime soon.
0: Yes, well, I think we have a number of items we could spend another 40 to a couple hours on uh, following up. So we'll definitely have you back. And in the meantime, next up, we're going to talk to Professor Mark Bishop for some plain talk about talking AI. So this is going to be a frank discussion about generative AI, including, of course, but not limited to the hot app of the moment, ChatGPT. Subscribe now so you don't miss it.